The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. We are kind of coming down to the end, the close of this letter that Peter has uh, written to these scattered, dispersed churches all over um, an area that persecution has sort of driven people and persecution is going to increase. And we're down to the last couple of sermons here. And we're going to, Lord willing, look at the first five verses of First Peter 5 this morning. But as we're singing together this morning, I, there at the end, it's sort of the instruments just drop out and it's just our voices. I, I was just kind of overcome with this thought that I'm thankful to be a part of a church that doesn't feel the need to, um, to put on a show to entertain, to, to come in and try to motivate you and make you a happy, clappy crowd, uh, just to let the truth be simply the truth and let you be kind of just awed by God. And I was, I was thinking about that, and I was, you know, Genesis 1, in the beginning was God, you know, and you just begin to read how God creates. God speaks. Let there be light. There's no, like, production. You know, God doesn't, like plan out this thing and, and, and launch this, you know, pre-launch strategy or anything. He just speaks and it's there. And, and that's what we want you to be overwhelmed with is just the simple, sovereign power of God and the beauty that he offers us hope and forgiveness and righteousness in the gospel. We want you to be overwhelmed with that. We don't care if you walk away saying, oh man, those musicians are great, which I think they are. But we don't want that to be the last thing you say. We don't want you sitting around lunch going, man, did, did you hear that or did you see that? We don't want you talking about the, the, the delivery of the sermon. We want you to leave here and talk about God. We want you to be overwhelmed with God and the beauty of Jesus and the gospel. That's what we want. And I, I'm, I'm thankful. I didn't plan on saying any of this. So I'm just kind of overwhelmed with, with right now just the simplicity of the truth and that God saves any of us. Amen? Well, this morning, Peter, in this letter, he's been up to now talking about, um, he's been talking to these Christians that are scattered. And he's been telling them how they are elect exiles, that they are chosen by God, but in the meantime, they're living in places that are not home to them, and therefore they're going to suffer. And he tells them, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you, that, this is, that, that judgment begins at the house of God, and that God is, God is doing something there to show who are truly His and who are those who are only really pretending. And suffering is what produces this Christ-like character in us. And so don't be surprised by this. God's using this. You are born again, he says, to a living hope. This is what, what he's been saying to the, the churches that are scattered about. This morning, he turns away from speaking to church members and Christians in general, and he begins to speak to the pastors. So my question to you this morning is, this is probably what some of you will be asking, why do you need a sermon about pastors? Like, why don't I just dismiss everybody here, and I'll just call Matt and, and Ethan and, and Donald, you can come down, and, and Wallace, you can come over, and just the pastors in the room, you know, we'll just, I'll, you just guys line up right here, and everybody else, you guys just go to Cracker Barrel, right? And we'll just, I'll just preach the sermon to them. Like, why do you need a sermon about pastors or two pastors? Well, I want to give you at least three 
reasons kind of in the intro before we dive into this, this text. The first is this. God thinks you need to be pastored. I mean, that's, God thinks you need to be pastored. He thinks you need to know about pastors. He's written this letter. He's preserved it in the Bible. But he thinks that you need to be pastored. Um, he, he calls you the flock of God. He calls you the flock of God. In other words, he compares us, and I say us, to sheep because I don't want to draw this line of demarcation between the one who stands up here and the ones who sit out there. We're all sheep. God calls us sheep. We're the, we're the flock of God. We're the sheep of his pasture, right? We see this all through the Bible. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us to our own way we've turned away. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, lest it be offensive to you that I'm referring to you as sheep today, I just want to remind you at the outset that it's not me calling you sheep. God does that. God calls us sheep. And I want to show you some things about sheep before I kind of dive into the text. Just to show you kind of what God's talking about. There's some similarities between sheep and, and people. Um, most animals have an uncanny ability to be able to, if lost, find their way back home. We've all seen these stories. Maybe you've even had a pet that got lost and found its way back home. We've seen these stories about dogs that get left at a campground somewhere and, and like trek 3,000 miles across the United States and show up like 12 months later and, you know, it's reuniting and the, you know, NBC does a story on it or whatever. You know, you see these things. Not sheep. Sheep don't have that ability. Sheep are prone to wander, and when they wander and become lost, they will not find their way back home. They need a shepherd who will leave out and go and find them and bring them back. Hence, Jesus' parable of the 99 and the 1. Jesus told a parable about a shepherd who said, you know, if, if you lost one sheep, would you not leave the 99 who are doing well, leave them in the open and go out and find the one? And when you find the sheep and bring it back, would you not rejoice and invite all your neighbors? Hey, come celebrate with me. I've found the sheep. The one that was lost is now, now back home. So we, like sheep prone to wander, leave, leave the God we love, go off, and we need shepherds who will bring us back into the fold. Sheep are unable to, to find adequate food and water. Uh, sheep will, they're, they're not very picky about what they eat. Uh, any of you have picky kids, picky eaters? Um, no, all your kids are not picky. I mean, for real, like you put broccoli in front of your kids, and they're like, Thank you, Mom. You know, I mean, is that what happens, right? Uh, my kids are picky eaters, and, and they're teenagers, and about to, you know, one's an adult now, and getting ready to leave the house in, in a year or so. And, uh, you know, but they're picky eaters. Sheep are not picky eaters. Sheep, sheep will eat anything, just about. They will, they will eat plants, whatever's in front of them, even plants that are poisonous for them. They will eat those poisonous plants. Just keep munching on them till. Their stomach begins to hurt and they fall over, I guess. They, even if they're on good grass, even if they're on good grass, they will eat that grass, they'll overgraze that, that pasture down to where they'll eat even the roots out of the ground and ruin that pasture. That's what sheep do. So sheep need a shepherd to lead them, to move them from pasture to pasture to help them find green grass. Sheep also need help to find good water. Sheep won't drink water that's running too rapidly. 
So what, what they'll do is they'll find a, a pool of water that is fairly still, and they'll drink from that water. Now, this will cause some sheep to even drink from stagnant, dirty, polluted pools because they're, they're, they're still. And so we know Psalm 23 talks about the fact that the shepherd leads us to still or quiet waters. So what shepherds would do is they would find these streams and they would dam up a section of the stream and let it pool with clean water and then lead his sheep down to the pool of water so that they would drink. They're afraid when the water's too rapid, but he would lead them to those quiet waters. And God says that we need shepherds that will lead us to the quiet water of God's word. Sheep also, their, their wool, they secrete this oil from their, their wool uh, at, at a pretty alarming rate, uh, to the rate at which, as they're just living out in the countryside, all the dirt, all the debris, all the windblown grass and sticks and all that gets stuck constantly in their fur or in their wool. Uh, and so in between shearings, the shepherd has to constantly be cutting away and grooming these sheep so that they can still function the way they should. Sheep, not only that, but they are passive and they are defenseless, and their only real response to when a predator comes around is to run. That's really the only thing they can do. Just run, run away, you know. Run, run away, right? Like run for us, run. That's a sheep, right? Uh, Well, they need a shepherd who will constantly be on guard to defend them. I took time this morning to show you these things because I want you to hear what God says about you and me. And I'm riding this thin line today because I understand that God's called me to be your shepherd. For almost eight years now, I've I've been here as your shepherd, and God's called me here to be your shepherd. So I I know that, and I I want to serve well in that role. I, I I want to be involved. I want to be God's means for doing these things in your life. But I also know my shortcomings and my tendencies that, that my life gets mired at times. That I at times wander away from God because I'm prone to do that. That sometimes I'll get off and begin to eat things that I shouldn't be eating. And so I need a shepherd as well. So this, I'm, I'm living in this dual world this morning of your shepherd and also a sheep right there with you. And this is the way God speaks of us is that we are sheep who need shepherds. We need to be pastored, and that's what God thinks. A second reason why you need to hear a sermon about pastors is the fact that probably most of you will be involved at some point in calling a pastor. I've been your pastor for eight years. Um, I probably won't be the last pastor that Abner Creek has. I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have anything on the horizon. I'm not leaving uh, anytime soon. don't have any desire to leave and go anywhere. But probably at some point, God will move me and, and call me away somewhere. And many of you will be involved in searching for the next man to fill the pastoral role here at this church, and you need to know what to look for. The last thing I want to do is to give my life here and then to see everything that's been worked for kind of be torn down. So you need to know what to look for. If God leaves me here until I retire, um, I, I will not hang around. I will not be a thorn in the, in the next pastor's side. I will, not, I, I will not be involved at all. You will call him because he will be your pastor. But I want you to know what to look for. The third reason you need to hear a sermon about pastors is because you need to know your responsibility toward those pastors. You need to know what God expects of you. You're going to hear today about what God expects of your pastor, but you also need to know what 
God expects of you toward your pastor. And so for all of these reasons, and there are more, but those are just three that I thought of, we need this sermon today. So if you will, turn with me and, and let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5. And let's look at verses 1 through 5 as we examine pastors together. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So just a few questions coming out of this passage this morning. The first is this, what should a pastor expect Peter here begins to exhort the elders among them as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. What is, what is Peter doing? I mean, up to this point, he has been addressing Christians in general. He's, again, told them that suffering is going to come, but take heart. They are God's chosen people, right? So why now? Why is he turning his attention to pastors specifically? Well, I think the answer is found in the passage, The very first word of verse 1 says, so. It could also be translated, therefore. What Peter is saying is, is, therefore, because of these things that I've just said to you, I'm going to exhort the pastors or the elders. Same, Same word. It points back to that little word, so, or therefore, points back to verses 12 through 19 that Matt dealt with last week in chapter 4. Specifically, I think that little word, so, or therefore, points back to verse 17. Verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And Matt was transparent with you last week, and he said, Well, I've wrestled with this all week. This is a tough thing to, to kind of grapple with, and it really is. If there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is what Romans 8 tells us, then why is... Peter here telling us that the judgment of God is beginning at the household of God. Well, I think, I think what Peter is doing here is he's saying to them that as time ramps up toward the end, toward the, the, the eschaton, the return of Christ, I think things are going to, the heat is going to be turned up and there will be a purification of the church, if you will. Probably verse 17 alludes back to, is tied back to Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and I won't read it there, but there in that passage, judgment began in the sanctuary of God and specifically starts with the elders or the pastors. So what does this mean for us today? Well, as the heat of persecution increases, there is a high likelihood that pastors will be the first to feel it. You think about it, it makes sense. If, if, the, if the population, if society in general grows more and more uh, angst toward Christianity and Christ's followers, uh, they, they, will, they will come after pastors more than anyone. 
Sure, they will come after you in your workplaces and those, anywhere that you take a stand for the Lord that you will be persecuted for following him. But pastors are the most visible target. The one who stands up front is the one who, who most often is, is the easiest to hit when you, when you throw things at him. And so this just makes sense that Peter is saying as the persecution increases that pastors are going to feel it the most or probably first. And the point I think that Peter is making here is that pastors are not those who will stand apart from their congregations and stand on platforms and simply offer advice to their people about how to endure suffering. This is not what pastors are called to. And I want you to, I want you to hear this. I'm not called... Matt's not called. Ethan, we're not called to to stand before you and tell you how you ought to do it without doing it ourselves. Instead, Peter's point is that pastors won't be those who stand apart from their congregation as the congregation goes through the fire. But instead, pastors stand with their congregation and go through the fire with them. We sang those lyrics a minute ago that, that he is with us through the fire. I couldn't help but to think that God gives us pastors to be a visible, physical means of his presence in the midst of those suffering those, and, the, and the fire. And so pastors aren't called to stand apart from you. They are called to stand with you. I, I think that's why Peter identified himself the way that he did. Look, look at verse 1. He could have said, I exhort the elders among you as an apostle. Is that what he said? It's not, what, it's not what my Bible says. My Bible says, Peter said, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. I mean, here's Peter. He's an apostle. He walked with Jesus. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He was commissioned personally, verbally by the resurrected Jesus. I mean, he's got cloud. If, if anybody had cloud, he could have said, hey, guys, I'm an apostle. Let me tell you what to do when you're out there on, on, the, on the front line of the battle. But instead, he doesn't say that. He says to these pastors who are out there facing persecution, walking through persecution with their congregations, he, says to, he calls himself a fellow elder, a fellow pastor. What he's doing is he's showing his solidarity with these pastors. Peter wasn't just speaking in platitudes or cliches. He was with them in the fire. He not only says that he's a fellow elder, he calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I mean, we don't know if Peter was actually there when Jesus was nailed to the cross. I mean, we don't really have a record of that. We have a record of of potentially him being there witnessing Jesus being scourged, and, and denying Jesus in the middle of that, perhaps, I mean, some commentators and scholars tell us that, that perhaps Jesus and Peter made eye contact at the moment that Peter denied Jesus for the third time. We don't know exactly how much he was there past that point. But if you think about it, Peter walked with Jesus from the beginning. Peter walked with Jesus and saw how he, he, he suffered in his humanity, how he was homeless. He didn't have a place to, to lay his own head. He watched how the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious people of the day hated him. He watched how people mocked him, and he watched the suffering of Jesus. He was there in the garden when Jesus was arrested. And he says to them, I am a fellow witness. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He had seen the suffering of Jesus, and now he spoke of it. This 
word here, the witness, when Peter calls himself a witness, is the word martis. It's the word where we get martyr from. Martyr was the word that came to be referred to a Christian who bore witness to the resurrected Christ. And they paid with their life. They were killed for their witness. And Peter goes on from here, and he just, he's, again, not just platitudes, hey, I'm a witness of the suffering of Christ. He's a witness to the point where he loses his own life. He's crucified probably most, most likely under the watch of Nero. He's crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself to be worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. These are not just words he's speaking to these elders. He said, I'm exhorting you as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. But before he would go on to be crucified, he wants them to know not only that, but that he was just like them, a recipient of the glory that would be revealed. He believed in it, and that's what propelled him. He would go through the fire with them. They were not alone. To which I would say to the pastors who are in this room and those who one day may be pastors who God calls out of this room. I look around at this room filled with young people and and, and even people in different stages of the career. No pastor is ever alone. Pastors will get out into some places where they will feel very much alone at times. And you say, yeah, I know, Pastor. It's, it's kind of a spiritual saying that God's always with you. Yeah, you're exactly right. But Peter goes beyond that and he says, not only is God always with you and He will be all that you need, but Pastor, no, I'm with you too. As I meet with fellow pastors in our area from various churches all over the Greenville-Spartanburg area, I know there are pastors serving in some lonely places. But do you know what it does for pastors to get together? And to pray for one another. And to realize they're not out there by themselves. That there are pastors that are also witnessing in, in secluded, seems like faraway places. And there are others just like them that are witnessing to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Peter wanted them to know they were not alone. None of us can know the internal fortitude of a man's character, but you can't help, I can't help but to wonder about some of the pastors who seem to have professionalized ministry in our day. Where ministry is is comfortable and it never really requires anything of you. And I can't help but to wonder, what would happen if all of a sudden persecution increased a hundredfold? What would happen to many of the pastors who, who right now serve as a pastor of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ if all of a sudden Christianity became illegal uh, in the United States of America? How many of those pastors would continue to preach the gospel? A true pastor is with you through the fire. A true pastor preaches irregardless of what's going on in culture around them. When the fire comes, they stand. So that's the first question. What should a pastor expect Secondly, what should a pastor do? Verses 2 through 3, I'll just walk through these. Peter, there's one word he uses to summarize the work of a pastor, and it's the word shepherd. And this word shepherd was an important word to Peter, and if you think about it, you can understand why. Peter was the one who denied Jesus three separate times in the midst of his being scourged and, 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 and led to the cross. And Peter had stood and said, Jesus, no, no, if everybody else walks away from you, I won't. I'll be with you to the end. And Peter had found himself to be a failure, denying Jesus Christ. 
He, he went away and he hid. And he, the Bible tells us that he went out and he wept bitterly over what he had done. But after Jesus had been crucified, placed into the tomb, and raised from the dead, John 21 tells us that Jesus met his disciples on the beach and he had prepared for them a breakfast of fish. And during that breakfast, when the breakfast comes to a close, Jesus tenderly looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter's words, Lord, you know I love you. And tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. And feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. Lord, you know that I love you. And shepherd my flock. And so when Peter comes to this issue, I will exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. The only word he can think of for the work of a pastor is shepherd. In fact, the word pastor means shepherd. And so Peter here tells them, shepherd, feed the flock, watch them, guard them, tend to them, restore them. Do the work of a shepherd in the lives of the Christians that you will be placed in charge of. This is what shepherds do. This is what pastors do. They shepherd. And with increasing persecution that is going to ramp up as we go through this time, shepherds will be needed all the more. Pastors will become all the more necessary because the sheep will be struck and they will be scattered all the more and there will be a need for pastors to chase after them. I want to just show you quickly in this passage, Peter, he just to these elders, to these shepherds or pastors, he gives these three common pitfalls that will trip them up. Because remember, they're not, also, they're not only shepherds, but they're also sheep themselves. And they're also going to face this persecution, and so he's going to warn them about some things. And he says to them, shepherd, I exhort you to shepherd the flock of God among you. Verse 2 says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So the the first pitfall that pastors face oftentimes is a love of ease. It's it's laziness. It's wanting things to be kind of smooth. And if it gets a little difficult, man, I don't really want to do that. But I guess I'm called to this, so I guess i got to do this. I grew up in East Tennessee. My my dad's dad um, called both my grandfathers Papaw. Um, both my grandmothers Mamaw. It was Papaw and Mamaw in East Tennessee. Papaw Ogle, my dad's dad... Never, he never went past sixth grade, never had a driver's license. Um, he farmed all his life up in the hills of Tennessee and, uh, and never owned a tractor at all. He always farmed with mules. And uh, he had several different mules all through his life, but, but they always had the same names. It was always Tobe and Jack. Like, I don't know what happened. Like, one day Tobe died, and there was just Tobe number two. Or I don't know. It's just, just kind of how it happened, right? So Tobe and Jack, these are the mules that, that, uh, that Papa had. And, and sometimes these mules would do, they have a mind of their own. You'd hook them to the plow and they'd go every way but the right direction. But, and I particularly remember that like when my dad was trying to, to, to you know, work the mules. They just wouldn't listen to him. Most of the time, though, the mules weren't really doing anything. You'd hook them to the plow and they'd just stand there. They needed some extra goading. They needed someone to make them go. And my dad, I can remember, I've, I've heard my dad use a curse word one time in my life, and it wasn't then, but, uh, but he would stand behind those mules and, and everything but a curse word to those mules, trying to get those mules to go, right? And they wouldn't do it. They'd just stand there, just, you know, like, who are you? You can't make us do anything, you know? But then Papaw would come. And Papaw would take 
would take that plow into his hands and take those reins, and he would just say a little word. It would be something like, ha, or gee, or come on, Tobe. Oh, something like that. And all of a sudden, these mules, these beasts that would not do anything before, at the, at the command of my grandfather, would begin to pull that plow in a straight line. I never knew what G or haw or any of those things meant. I stood there as an 8-year-old, 10-year-old boy, and I was just enamored, amazed at my grandfather. But those mules knew. They knew exactly the tone of his voice and what those words meant. They could distinguish one meant left and one meant right. And, you know, it was all sorts of things. The point that I want to make with that is there are some pastors who serve oftentimes like those mules. They spend a lot of their time standing around and they need some extra goading. They need someone to come along and push them into ministry. And the Bible here says that it should never be that way, that instead that pastors should serve not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you. And I read that and I couldn't help but to think about those mules were, once my grandfather took the reins, were doing things as my grandfather would have them do. And may it always be of pastors that they would serve willingly, voluntarily, diligently. This is what... Peter, this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. It's what he was trying to convey when he said, For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessities laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And I know that feeling. There have been seasons of my life where I have been without a place of ministry. And when God places on you this call to preach and you have nowhere to preach, you feel like you're going to go insane. You feel like you're going to erupt. And you need this place to preach. And this is what Paul was saying. This is not a work of compulsion for me. This is not a job. I would say to any of these, any that are sensing a call of God to ministry, any young men that God's calling to pastor, I would say to you, you better make sure that God's calling you to pastor. Wise advice has been given to me many times over, and I have passed it on to other young guys. If you could see yourself, if you can envision yourself doing anything else and being content doing it to make a living for you and your family, go do that. Because there will be seasons of ministry. You better know that God's called you to it. What should a pastor do? Here's common pitfall. Number one is love of ease. Number two is this love of money. The second part of verse 2, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. There are opportunities for pastors to abuse money. Billy Sunday was one of the most famous evangelists or revivalists of the early 1900s. It's, historians tell us that between 1908 and 1920 that Billy Sunday collected over $1 million in offerings. Do you know how much money that was in 1908 and 1920? One particular evening when Billy Sunday was, he had preached a, a service and they, they collected the offering and while he was preaching they counted the offering. They came and told him how much was given in the offering. And he became angry. He felt it should be more. And so he, he gave them the order to send the basket around again and collect another offering. And that night he collected, I think historians tell us, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of $30,000 or so in one night. And there's a famous picture of Billy Sunday that night carrying money bags and putting them into his car. 
and it tainted his ministry. Um, pastors have all sorts of opportunities to, to abuse money. And there are people today that won't, won't listen to anything about the church because they've seen this. They've seen a pastor abuse. They look at, look at pastors on TV and they have these multi-million dollar homes and private jets. And I've been serving as your pastor now for eight years and I've not seen any of that. Uh, you know, but, but this is the reality with some on, on TV and other things, right? And the world looks at that and says... That can't be a man of God. There are opportunities to abuse money, and I think Satan would love to use this in the life of pastors. And pastors and ministers could, could skim off the top when there are not systems in place to be accountable for what's given. You know, churches don't have any real source of income. We don't have a revenue stream. We are dependent on the gifts of, of, of God's people. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks about God loves a cheerful giver, and, and that's, that's all we have. And if there are not systems in place, and I thank God for those that are over those here, I mean, pastors could easily just begin to take that money and skim here and there, and no one would be the wiser. This happens in, in a lot of churches. Pastors could, could misspend budget lines. They could lie about expenses. They could manipulate contributors. I could stand up here and give you some sad story and, and emotionally manipulate you. And you say, well, not everybody could be manipulated. You're right, not everybody, but some people could. And pastors could, could say, well, you know, everyone else should give and they should tithe, but not me. You know, I'm taking my salary from the church, so I don't need to tithe. There are all sorts of opportunities for pastors to, to mishandle and abuse money. I want to say two things to you this morning as your, as your pastor, very, practic, very practically this morning. Two things. Number one is I don't know what anybody here gives. I make it my business to not know what anybody here gives. I don't want to know. The main reason I don't want to know is because I don't want to start treating you differently. I don't want to find out that you give a lot and therefore i got to bend over backwards to keep you happy. Nor do I want to know that you don't give anything. And I start ignoring you. I don't know what anybody gives, and I don't want to ever know what anybody gives. I don't care. I want to minister to the people that God has placed me over as a shepherd to sheep. That's it. The second thing that I want to say to you in a practical manner this morning is I don't handle money. Um, I would just ask you to protect myself, protect our staff in this way. Don't hand me or hand your staff money. Don't, don't put money in our hands, whether, hey, I, Pastor, I forgot my offering. forgot to put it in the plate, and, and I wrote the check afterwards. Can you, can you give this in? Uh, I, I would just ask you just respectfully, I, don't wanna, I just don't want to handle it. I don't want to have the temptation there. I don't want to be accused of anything. So, so I'd rather not touch it. I'd rather you not give it to, to our, our staff. Um, whether it's camp payments or, or, uh, or, or, you know, whatever the case may be, mission trip payments, whatever. There, there are ways that we have set up uh, for you to, to take care of those things, and I just ask you not to give them to us. The offering plate, place it there. The members of the finance team, give it to them. Uh, Amy's in the office. Schedule a time. Call her. Make sure she's there. Go by and, and, and take it to her. There's also a mailbox over there at the office. Uh, that has the bottom compartment is, is locked, and you can drop payments in there for things. But I would just ask you, 
And you guys are kind of looking at me like, you know, what is this? This doesn't really sound like a sermon. I'm just practically shepherding you right here. Just protect us by not placing money into our hands. Third, third pitfall that pastors often face, and, and I, I, I'll kind of fly through this, but the third pitfall is love of power. Peter says there in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Be examples to the flock, he says. Don't, not everyone could be oppressed by a domineering leader, but some people could. Some people can very much be oppressed. I mean, watch these stories of cult survivors. And you hear these stories and you think, how would anybody ever fall prey to that? I mean, this guy, seriously, who, who falls prey to that? And you realize there are people that can be manipulated and oppressed. Um, I served with a pastor one time, and I'm not going to say his name, but I served with a pastor who, who would stand at the front, and he would be preaching his sermon or whatever, and if the, if the sound system, guys, if it, if it squealed with feedback or something like that, he would glare at them. And he would pull his glasses down, and he would just glare at them. Larry's sh- shrinking right now. And I'm very, I'm very appreciative for those guys. But he would glare at them, and if it, and if it continued to happen, he would call them out. I heard, I heard this pastor on more than one occasion go, come on, guys. What would you think of me if I called out our sound guys like that? Would you want to come and listen to me? This is what Peter is saying. Don't, don't domineering, don't, don't, don't lead or don't shepherd in a domineering way. Don't manipulate people. I, I, my professor, this last seminar I was in, told of a, of a pastor who, um, when, when a church would be in a business meeting, he had a chair up here on the platform the way you know, it used to always be. He had a business meeting, and he would sit on the platform during the votes. And the church knew exactly the way he wanted the vote to go. And they voted by show of hands. And when they voted against what he wanted, he sat up there with a clipboard. He'd flip that open, and he would just write down their name. This stuff goes on. And Peter says, don't ever let it be. There's a love of power that can be just intoxicating to pastors. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our example, pastors, for the pastors that you will one day seek, are not the most powerful men of our day and age. Our example is to be Jesus Christ who laid down his life in service of you and I. And the fourth question, I think this is third or fourth, third question, I guess it is, that I'll just close with this question. Out of our passage in verse 4, the question is, why should a pastor keep going? If suffering is going to come, by and large, to pastors first, if they're going to feel the heat first... And they're called to, to shepherd. They're going to expect this. And they, the work must go on. And they must not, they must not do this thing uh, under compulsion. But they've got to keep doing this thing willingly. Guarding this love of money and love of power. Why should they keep going? And there may come a day and age in, in our setting where the heat is really turned up on Christians. If, if that's the case, there are places all around the world where that is the truth. Why should pastors keep going? Two reasons out of this one verse. First, pastors don't work for themselves. 
Verse 4 says, and when the chief shepherd appears. The word chief there implies that there, are, there is a chief and there are those who are under that chief. And pastors serve not as shepherds of the church. Pastors serve as under shepherds of the chief shepherd. This church is his. It's not mine. It will never be anybody's that has their name here. It's, it belongs to the Lord Jesus. I don't work for myself. I may file with the IRS as a self-employed person, but I have an employer. His name is Jesus. Pastors are not autocrats who set their agenda and make their own rules. We serve as under-shepherds to the chief shepherd. We care for his flock. Pastoring is a responsibility, not a privilege, whereby we advance our status. A verse of Scripture that just absolutely gives me trepidation is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Serving as a pastor is one of the great privileges of my life, but it's not simply a privilege. It is a responsibility. I've got to keep going because I'm not working for myself. I serve as an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd. Second reason I keep going. Pastors won't receive their reward now. There are, um, the, the last part of verse 4 says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory when the chief shepherd appears. And there are lots of dimensions of ministry that are thankless. Lots of times you show up at places and you, you, you serve and you do these things and no one ever really notices. And, 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 and that's okay, that's part of ministry. Um, I do think I would be remiss if I didn't call you to, uh, to appreciate your pastors. And that's a little weird for me to stand up here and say that. But uh, I think the Bible calls us to that. The Bible calls us to, um, to, to honor those who, uh, who labor hard and well in, in the preaching of the gospel. But, but there are parts of ministry that are thankless. But accolades here are not the point. Peter says to these pastors who will serve in thankless positions and, and do countless acts of ministry that will go unnoticed, he says to them, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Accolades here are never the point. Heaven is the point. In the Greco-Roman world, leafy crowns were awarded to athletes and to military conquerors. They would... And, military conqueror would come home from the, the field having won the, the, the battle or the war and they would take this, this crown they had made from, from these branches with these green leaves and they would place it on his head. What would happen after just a few days to that crown? It begins to dry up and turn brown and crumble and fall away, right? Peter's saying to us, to pastors who are serving in some faraway, lonely places where persecution will increase and you will feel the heat of that persecution. Labor not for the earthly accolades and the things that will fade away and crumble and dry and turn brown. Labor for the crown of glory that will never fade. And that's why we keep going. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I pray God... Lord, first of all, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for leading me to this passage. This is a passage, Lord, that I probably would not have chosen to preach. But God, you've led me here.
Lord, you've left it in our Bibles because you know it's necessary for us. So, Lord, I pray that you would take it as it's been preached this morning, and God, that you would apply it, Lord, to our own minds and our hearts and our lives. Lord, that you would use it to build your church here at Abner Creek. God, that you might take this sermon and this passage, and Lord, that you might hide it in our hearts, Lord, that it becomes soul-shaping for us. Lord, that it might even become useful and necessary for churches beyond Abner Creek. That there might be people that go out from this congregation the way that Dane and Dee have to another area and find another church, Lord, and hear the Word of God and are able to use the Word of God to bring about, to, to impact godly change that will glorify and honor you. Lord, take this and do with it what you would. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how to really call you to a response, but I am going to call you to that. Uh, if you're here today and, and, um, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you've heard in this message, even though it's not been a gospel-focused message, I pray that you would have heard throughout the service the hope that can only be found in Jesus Christ. That we, apart from, apart from knowledge of God, are hopeless. The Bible calls us dead in our sin and trespasses. And God looked on us, as Ethan even said to you earlier, when we were running from him, when we were dead in our sins, he reached out to us and adopted us into his family. You today, if you don't know the Lord, can have your sins forgiven, can have the righteous life that Jesus lived applied to your account so that when God sees you, he sees you as completely forgiven and completely righteous. Today, by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ, today you can know hope that will never leave you. And even though suffering will happen in this world, it seems like when I began to preach through 1 Peter, a book largely about thriving through suffering, it seems like our church has gone through some suffering in the last little bit, last few months. So even when that suffering comes, God is with you. And God is with you through the fire. And so if you're here today and you don't know him as Savior today, I just implore you to turn to him. I'll be down here on the front if you want to turn and trust Christ today for, for salvation, forgiveness of your sins. Uh, come speak to me uh, as, we, as we respond at this time. Maybe you're here today and you just want to, um, and again, this feels selfish for me to say this, but maybe you just want to pray for your pastors. Use this time. Maybe to turn to the Lord and just cry out to God to protect your pastors, to use your pastors, to keep them close to Him. Whatever it is the Lord is calling you to do today, I just want to give you an opportunity. I've said to you countless times, a sermon is not complete until you obey what God has brought to your attention. And so whatever the Lord leads you to today, be obedient to Him. Let's worship as we respond. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.